All right, let me encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles. Go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. Okay, we're in our second week of looking at this interaction between Christ and this woman in Samaria. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty deep, it's pretty complicated, incredibly comprehensive, so we're not going to rush. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to begin in verse number 15. This unnamed woman, in verse 15, addresses Christ. This address is in response to this offer in verse 14 of water that I will give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up into eternal life. To which the woman responds, Sir, Mr., a term of respect. Give me this water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's not getting it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's interesting to note in the Greek the word a or the or the definite article or the indefinite article is not present. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she continues. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Let's have a theological conversation. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, referring to the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We, referring to the Jews, the Israelites, we worship... What we do know for, here's a true statement, salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. Not only is it coming, it's now here. Then you're going to underline in your Bible when the true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father and they will worship the Father in spirit. And they will worship the Father in truth. Then you read this incredible prepositional phrase. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And then once again the woman deflects. He says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, I know that the Christ, I know that the anointed one is coming. And when he comes, he'll settle all these theological disputes. And then look at Jesus' answer. He says, I who speak to you am he. Father, bless our time together in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. 
be glorified in the way we deal with the text and the deliberateness and the careful and the intentionality. Minister to your people, feed them, encourage them from the word in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remind ourselves, why is Jesus evangelizing a Samaritan? Why is Jesus evangelizing a Samaritan? We went back last week to Genesis chapter number 12, and we looked at verse number 3, and we remember reading, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we said that that blessing was justification, help me out, justification by faith. Let's remind ourselves that God has never forgotten about the nations, that God has always cared about the nations, that it was always God's intent to save the nations. And did he choose to use Israel to bring that salvation to fruition? Yes. But now choosing to go to Samaria, right here into the heart of this half-breed society, was a reminder that God has not forgotten about the Samaritans. God has not forgotten about the Gentiles. He desires that all men come to salvation. We did this giant comparison last week between chapter 3 and chapter 4. We noticed some incredible details like Nicodemus was a male. This unnamed woman is a female Nicodemus is a true Jew and she's a Samaritan. Nicodemus came by night, but she came by day. Nicodemus was a law keeper. He was a Pharisee. He was morally right with God. This woman is clearly a lawbreaker. She is sexually immoral in her behavior. Nicodemus in chapter 3 was educated. He was part of the socially elite crowd. This woman is uneducated. In all probability, she is a social outcast. But she comes at noontime to draw water when no one else would be there. Nicodemus believes in the entire Tanakh. He believes in the Torah. He believes in the writings. He believes in the prophets. This Samaritan believes only in the Torah. She limits the revelation of Genesis, Exodus, Vigas, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Both are struggling. He argues about being born again. Can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And she says, Jesus, how are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a ladle. You don't even have a bucket. Both of them are struggling with spiritual things. He addresses Jesus as a rabbi, or we could say a master teacher. And she calls Jesus a prophet. Here's the reality. Male or female, lawbreaker or religious, or anything in between, They both need the same things. That's the point. Jesus will tell Nicodemus about the water and the spirit. And here in chapter 4, he's telling the woman about the living water and the role of the spirit. And in both cases, each need eternal life. So everyone who drinks of water in verse number 13 will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of water that I give him will never be thirsty again. To which she says, I want that water. Okay, I want that water. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's like she missed this part right here. Because she says, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So is she, is she converted at this point? No. How's she thinking? How's she thinking? Physical, that's right. 
She doesn't have a spiritual thought right now. Why doesn't she get it? Jesus is talking about spiritual things, and she's living in an earthly plane. And that's the serious contrast that we have going on here. So now we have this huge change in tactics. Go call your husband and come here. Let's just stop and think about how huge this is. My favorite Marine was in the 830 service, so I said to him, this is the equivalent of an Army NCO going onto a Marine installation and barking out orders at Marines. They would look at you, John, like you don't have an ounce of authority to tell me anything. It says U.S. Army on your shirt, not Marine Corps. Don't miss this. Jesus is a Jew. This is like you, a U.S. citizen, going to Canada and then deciding to take charge of something in Canada. Do you not understand you don't have any authority here? This is huge. What should she tell him to do? Pound sand. He's establishing his authority in her life. He's establishing his authority not just in Jerusalem, but also where? In Samaria. See, he's not the God of the Jews. He's the God of the world. And he has the authority to go anywhere and tell anyone what needs to be told. So he says, go call your husband and come here. And the issue is, will she submit to his authority? Will she acknowledge it? When he tells a woman who has never met, who is of a different ethnicity, to go call her husband, this is all about authority. This is all about authority. And we struggle with this. Does Jesus have the right to confront me with my sexual immorality? Does Jesus have the right to confront me with my secret racism towards white people? Oh, I know, you're not, oh, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say that, right? It only goes one way, right? We're not allowed to address it in both ways. Does Jesus have the right to confront me with my racism towards Palestinians? Does Jesus have the right to confront me with my racism towards Jews? Does Jesus have a right to speak into my life and identify sin and cause me to analyze it? Yes or no this morning? Yes. yes. And this is why the church is struggling because we don't acknowledge his authority to confront my hatred, my profanity, my self-righteous arrogance, my pick whatever you want, my apathy towards the things of God. Does Jesus have the right to cut my heart open and look at every ounce of who I am and call to my attention that which needs to be fixed? The woman says, I have no husband. Which Jesus says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Is there something happening? What do you all think, church? Is there some type of transformation happening? What are your thoughts? You're an evangelist. You're witnessing with this person right here. Would you think that something's happening in her heart right now? Is this not some incredible honesty? Is she beginning to change? It's curious. We wonder. By the way, let's make some observations about what Jesus says here. 
Jesus clarifies that sleeping with a man does not make him your husband. Does not make him your husband. Jesus also clarifies that divorce or death creates an opportunity for someone to have a second husband. Now, he's not condoning sin by no means. But he does make a clear distinction between that person's not your husband. So evidently there wasn't a covenant commitment ceremony. And you've had five husbands. So the woman says, let's change the subject, please. Right? Please, I don't want to talk about myself anymore. I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, what we don't know is what prophet is she talking about? Is she talking about the prophet with the uppercase P? Because that would have been right up her alley. She knows Deuteronomy 18.15. She knows Deuteronomy 18.18. What's the PPK about? What is this, church? You guys know this, right? Prophet what? Priest and king. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, Yahweh, your Elohim, will raise up a prophet like me from among you, Listen to him. To him you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command to him. He is clearly right. Prophet, priest, and king. This is from last Sunday night. I showed you Clarence Larkin. He's a very early dispensationalist in the 1800s. And unfortunately, he created a lot of confusion with these charts. Here he is with the cross right here in the middle right here. And he's suggesting that prior to the cross, Christ was a prophet. After the cross, he becomes a priest. And not until the second coming does he become a king. That's really unfortunate, church. That is not how Christ rules in our life. That is not how Christ operates in our life. How then does he operate He is our prophet, priest, and king at all times in the same way. Maybe you're not familiar with prophet, priest, and king, so let me give you an alternative. How about this one? Teacher, Savior, what am I going to write here? Lord. Speak to me, Lord. Talk to me, Jesus. Direct me, guide me, inform me. Open my eyes. That's prophet. Forgive me. I butchered it, Lord. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Then third, what? Bow the knee. Bow the knee. Submit to his authority. Recognize his authority, Lucas, in your life. Bow the knee is the, the response of, I submit to you. You are my king. You are my Lord. And Jesus operates in our lives like that all the time. This this trifurcation in which he was a prophet and then a priest and someday he'll be a king is completely unscriptural. In John 9, 17, he is a prophet. In John 1, 29, he's the Lamb of God. And in John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't say someday I'm getting a kingdom. Verse 20. So she says, on this mountain, referring to this terrain right here, on this mountain right here, we worship. That's where we Samaritans worship. But you Jews, you say you have to go down to Jerusalem in this temple. 
Let's have a theological argument about where you can worship. What do you say, Mr. Prophet? Is it true that we have to come down here? Can we worship in both places? Can we have a conversation about this? He says, woman, believe me, the hour. Jesus loves this language of the hour. John 2, John 4, John 8, John 12, 23 and 27, John 13, 1, John 13, 16, 32, and John 17, 1. He uses this hour, hour of his impending death. So how does this relate over here? The hour, the hour is coming. My death, my death is coming, is coming. My death is coming. And when that death comes, it's going to change everything. When Jesus says it is finished, what is finished? So let's go all the way back to Genesis 22. Let's go back to Genesis 22 for a minute so we can make an Old Testament connection. Genesis 22. What chapter is this? What chapter is this? Come on, you should know. What chapter is this? Yeah, this is Isaac. Yeah, it's one of the biggest chapters in the Old Testament as far as importance. It's a huge picture of Christ as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Isaac is the child of promise. And in verse 5, quite frankly, we the reader are shocked when Abraham describes Offering Isaac as a burnt sacrifice as an act of worship. That's what he says. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the bull will go over there and worship and come again to you. But by worship, what's he talking about here? Putting my son on a cross. So they're having an argument do we worship here or do we worship here? Where do we sacrifice animals at? Is it acceptable to sacrifice animals up here or do we have to only do it at the temple? And Jesus says, stop, time out. That's not what we're having a conversation about. Once Christ was offered and accepted as the ultimate and final atoning sacrifice, Every subsequent animal sacrifice was a rejection of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Y'all get that? Let's create a spot right here in the middle of the auditorium right here. Go back this direction right here, and this is bloody sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, more bloody sacrifices on Passover. Bam, the ultimate Passover lamb dies. It is finished. Into my hands I commend my spirit. The veil's ripped in two. And from that point forward, for at least 30 years, they kept sacrificing. They kept sacrificing. What stopped the sacrificing? What brought it to an end? The Romans. Destruction of the what? The temple. And their place of dawn. But every subsequent sacrifice over here, was that an act of worship anymore? No. And in fact, it wasn't an act of worship. It was a repudiation. It was a rejection. Yeah, you say that, but we don't believe you. 
we're going to continue with this Mosaic law, Passover sacrifice. We have to understand the significance of this. Jesus is cryptically communicating that he is about to bring an end to, one, the Mosaic covenant, two, the Levitical priesthood, and three, all sacrifices at the temple will no longer be acceptable worship to the Father. Nod your head if you see what I'm saying. The woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So I have a complicated, um, Bill, I have a complicated um, graph. In the center of the graph is a cross. I have the, the sixth saying of Christ, which is, it is finished. Then I have the seventh saying of Christ, which is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then on the left-hand side is the Mosaic covenant is now brought to an end. And the new covenant begins. So now I want to read to you two passages to show you how this works out, how it fleshes out in our lives. Paul writes to the Jews, I became a Jew, I'm right here, in order to win Jews. To those under, and he's talking about the law of Moses right here, I became one under the law though not myself under the law. So he says, I, I chose to become under law, but in reality, I'm not under the law. That I might win those under the law. So, so I'll conform in order to have an influence on these, but theologically, I'm not under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Notice his statement. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Not enough Christians understand this. You're not under the Mosaic law. You've been delivered from the Mosaic law and the law that you're under is the law of Christ. Which is what Paul argues for <clears throat> and then the writer of Hebrews continues to reiterate. Reading from the NASB in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17 for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while one who made it lives. So Christ dies and the new covenant begins. Does the new covenant say anything about sacrificing in Jerusalem? No. No. It's a totally different covenant. So I think we have uniform agreement concerning that the physical temple in Israel, the Levitical priesthood, and the animal sacrifices are brought to an end with the institution of the new covenant. But, and this is what we're talking about on Sunday nights, what we don't agree on as a church is did Jesus completely bring an end to the bloody sacrifices or did Jesus temporarily bring an end to the bloody sacrifices? The church is not in agreement on this. The church, and I don't mean Berean, although even within Berean we have different opinions of this. In other words, was this a full stop, no more bloody sacrifices, done, or was this a temporary stop and someday a temple's being rebuilt and we're going back to offering bloody sacrifices? And we're going to talk about this on Sunday nights for a couple weeks so that we get some good clarity 
on this issue. The temple in Jerusalem was not destroyed until 70 today. So we have at least 35 years in which every lamb, every goat was a wholesale rejection of the sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice. I sure am glad we don't do that today. Maybe we do. What do you mean maybe we do? Let's spend a few minutes meddling right now. Let's dig a little bit deep. How many Christians say stuff like, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized. I know I'm a Christian because I asked Jesus in my heart. I know I'm a Christian because I read my Bible. I know I'm a Christian because I go to church. Every single time you articulate something like that, you're suggesting that the sufficiency of what Christ accomplished wasn't quite enough. Now, you don't think you're doing that. But in the reality, if you talk about your salvation testimony, if I talk about my salvation testimony, you should be saying, Christ did it all. There should never be anything that comes out of your mouth other than I'm trusting in him. He did it. He saved me. He thoroughly changed me. Him, him, and more him. See, we don't go and offer a sacrifice this week. Instead, we somehow want to bring our own personal righteousness in. You know what we like? We like religious hybrids. You know what I mean by a hybrid? A lot of Christ and a little bit of me in there somehow. You know, because, you know, I am a good person. Come on, let's be honest. And what we should be doing is rejecting any perception at all that what I do brings anything of value to my salvation. That it is all Christ and all him and nothing more. Now notice in verse 22, Jesus does tell the truth. He says, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So, so we need to acknowledge wholeheartedly that the basis of our salvation, the foundation of our salvation is the Old Testament and the Israelites. We cannot ignore that. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Look at how Paul articulates this in Romans chapter 9. He gives all the credit to the Israelites. All of it. Romans chapter 9. They are Israelites. Now when he says they are Israelites in this verse, he's talking about ethnic, national, territorial Israelites. E, ethnic, national, territorial Israelites. They are Israelites. And to them belong, and look at this litany of, of this. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To them belong an ethnicity according to the flesh, the ethnicity that the Christ came from, the Christ who is God. So Paul in no way, shape, or form in, at, at all, based on what Christ said here, this relationship is negating the importance of the Israelites. 
nor are we. We're understanding that all that we understand in our New Testament is grounded and rooted in these incredible promises that God gave the Israelites. Adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises to them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all forever. Jesus says, there's a change coming. But the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, one, and truth. You see the change he's making here. This is huge. Everything's changing at this moment. Let's go, let, let me stand this, this way. Let's, let's throw my arms out like this. All that are the worshiping in accordance to the way the Israelites offered worship in the Mosaic law. Christ says, it is finished. I commit my spirit to you. The new covenant begins and we go this direction. Everyone follow me. And from this moment forward, worship is completely different. It's now in spirit and it's now in truth. Bloody sacrifices, temple location, all that stuff is done. Now... You and I can worship God anywhere in spirit and in truth. So next week we're going to unpack with great specificity what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth because that's important to us. Do we agree on that? Why is it such a big deal? Because of what the next sentence says or the end of the sentence would be a more appropriate way of saying that. For the Father... The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Yes. Yes, John, you are correct. Let's stop and think about this. I really want to get your attention this morning. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father wants you to worship Him today, Lucas. The Father desires that you worship Him today. The Father desires that you open your eyes in the morning and do all you can to turn every act into a deliberate act of worship. These dishes are going to be washed to your glory, Lord. This song from my lips is going to be praised to you and you alone, Lord. Cut my heart open, Lord, and expose everything inside of it and show me, am I truly worshiping in spirit and in truth? Rip me open and reveal to me, is my heart wholly yours, Lord? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking. What do y'all think about seeking? Do you get the idea of seeking? Can we grasp that idea? Anybody on this pew want to worship me? How about this pew? I'm looking for worshipers. We over here want to worship? 
Anybody here planning on worshiping the Lord today? Are we talking about singing on Sunday morning? Is that what we're talking about? Is that the extent of it or is there more to it? All right, there's more to it. Why is the word true inserted before worshipers in verse 23? Why is the word true inserted before worshipers in verse 23? Because everyone in this audience is not a true worshiper. You need to be asking yourself, and I need to be asking myself this morning, am I? Are you? Do I truly worship the Lord? Father is seeking such people to worship him. When we think of evangelism, church, we typically think of about one less soul, and normally, if we're honest, our loved one going to hell. Do you agree or disagree with that idea? Do you agree or disagree with that idea? Talk to me. I want to share the gospel with you so that you don't go to hell. I've got a son, I've got a daughter, I've got a friend, I've got a nephew, niece, cousin, and I don't want them to go to hell. So I'm praying for their salvation and I sure hope they get saved so they don't go to hell, right? And we might even think about terms of, and, and I get to see them in eternity and that'll be even better. When was the last time you thought about the fact that the goal of evangelism is to increase the number of worshipers of the one true and living God today, right now. Come on. For most of us, the gospel is fire assurance. Fire assurance. When was the last time you thought about the fact that the Father wants more people to worship Him. And the goal is to pack this church with people who worship the Lord. That missions is about increasing the number of people who worship the Lord. What is the point of your salvation if you don't become a worshiper? What is the point of your salvation if you don't become a person who does his will? What is the point of your salvation if you don't become a person who's concerned about glorifying the Lord? Would you please grasp with me that Christ came to Samaria to change a socially outcast, theologically confused, sexually immoral, religious idolater to a worshiper of the true and living God. What do you think about that? What do you think about the fact that Jesus Christ moved in such a deliberate way to get you to stop being an idolater? And to become a true worshiper 
of God. To transform you. You see, you can't worship the Lord unless you worship him in spirit and in truth. So your spirit must be transformed. It is impossible for you to worship the Lord unless you've been transformed. So we think about a socially outcast, theologically confused, sexually immoral, religious idolater, and suddenly she's going to become a worshiper of the one true and living God. I don't think I ever saw how many times worship is in this passage until I did this simple thing on the diagram. I don't think I ever thought about it. In fact, I will tell you that there is no place in Scripture where worship is used more times in such a dense area than this single area. Listen to the language in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So clearly we're having an argument about worship. To which Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Third reference. You worship what you do not know. So you're worshiping out of ignorance. We, the Jews, worship what we do know, grounded in the Old Testament, because salvation does have its origin in the covenants and the ethnicity of Israelites. But, verse 23, there's a huge change coming. Why do you think that huge change came? But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And as though that's not enough, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Here's my question to you this morning, church. How do you keep from just going through the motions? How do you and I and John, Joan, how do we, Chris, how do we keep from just going through the emotions? Emotions. What do I mean by that? We're all here worshiping on Sunday morning, collectively as the body of Christ. Yes or no? And is it not difficult to keep from getting distracted everywhere? Do we as a church need to put more emphasis on focusing on Christ and the truth. Spirit and the truth. A, a conscious, deliberate, I want to worship you this morning. I want my spirit to connect with your, you, the spirit in me, the, the, I, the Holy Spirit. I want my spirit to connect with the spirit. I, I, want, I want to think about what I'm singing. I want to think about the theological, doctrinal truths behind what I'm saying. I want it to be real worship. 
you? I have two questions. Do you get it? And two, do you care? Are those reasonable questions to ask? One, do you get it? Two, does it even matter to you? Does it even matter to you? Do you really want the Lord to see you worshiping him? Do, do you want the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords to look down and say, he's worshiping me, she's worshiping me, they're worshiping me. In just a moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity to worship together. I have a song that we're going to sing together. And I hope we can close this time out with a little bit more worship. Is singing what we do until we get to preaching? Is singing worship to you? What does your heart look like? When was the last time I thought about I was saved to worship him? Listen to this Matt Redman song. I'm going to show you the lyrics and then we're going to sing it because you might not be familiar with it. You guys back, ready back there? I'm going to go through the lyrics and then we're going to do it. Just give me a second. Nope, 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 nope. Too early. Boy, this is where you wish, John, you could sing. You know what I mean? When the music fades... And all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. Stop and think about that. I want to bless God's heart. See, how dare you think about blessing God's? He's seeking those who will worship those in spirit and truth. He desires that I bless his heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. I want to bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you required. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. When it's all about you. It's all about you. And then I love this language. King of endless worth. No one could express how much you deserve. Stand for worship. It's only three minutes, so don't wait two minutes to start worshiping.